0: THE MAN WHO KNEW TOO MUCH by G. K. CHESTERTON Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. CHAPTER Six: THE HOLE IN THE WALL Two men, the one an architect and the other an archaeologist, met on the steps of the great house at Pryor's Park, and their host, Lord Bulmer, in his breezy way, thought it natural to introduce them. It must be confessed that he was hazy as well as breezy, and had no very clear connection in his mind, beyond the sense that an architect and an archaeologist begin with the same series of letters. The world must remain in a reverent doubt as to whether he would, on the same principles, have presented a diplomatist to a dipsomaniac, or a ratiocinator to a rat-catcher. He was a big, fair, bull-necked young man abounding in outward gestures, unconsciously flapping his gloves and flourishing his stick. "'You two ought to have something to talk about,' he said cheerfully. "'Old buildings and all that sort of thing. This is rather an old building, by the way, though I say it who shouldn't. I must ask you to excuse me a moment. I've got to go and see about the cards for this Christmas romp my sister's arranging.' We hope to see you all there, of course. Juliet wants it to be a fancy dress affair, abbots and crusaders and all that. My ancestors, I suppose, after all.' "'I trust the abbot was not an ancestor,' said the archaeological gentleman with a smile. "'Only a sort of great-uncle, I imagine,' answered the other, laughing. Then his rather rambling eye rolled round the ordered landscape in front of the house an artificial sheet of water ornamented with an antiquated nymph in the centre, and surrounded by a park of tall trees, now grey and black and frosty, for it was in the depth of a severe winter. "'It's getting jolly cold,' his lordship continued. "'My sister hopes we shall have some skating as well as dancing.' "'If the crusaders come in full armour, said the other, "'you must be careful not to drown your ancestors.' Oh, there's no fear of that, answered Bulmer. This precious lake of ours is not two feet deep anywhere. And, with one of his flourishing gestures, he stuck his stick into the water to demonstrate its shallowness. They could see the short end bent in the water, so that he seemed for a moment to lean his large weight on a breaking staff. The worst you can expect is to see an abbot sit down rather suddenly, he added, turning away. Well, au revoir. I'll let you know about it later. The archaeologist and the architect were left on the great stone steps smiling at each other. But whatever their common interests, they presented a considerable personal contrast, and the fanciful might even have found some contradiction in each considered individually. The former, a Mr. James Haddo, came from a drowsy den in the Inns of Court, full of leather and parchment, for the law was his profession and history only his hobby. He was, indeed, among other things, the solicitor and agent of the Prior's Park estate. But he himself was far from drowsy, and seemed remarkably wide-awake, with shrewd and prominent blue eyes, and red hair brushed as neatly as his very neat costume. The latter, whose name was Leonard Crane, came straight from a crude and almost cockney office of builders and house-agents in the neighbouring suburb. Sunning itself at the end of a new row of jerry-built houses, with plans in very bright colours and notices in very large letters. But a serious observer, at a second glance, might have seen in his eyes something of that shining sleep that is called vision. And his yellow hair, while not affectedly long, was unaffectedly untidy. It was a manifest, if melancholy, truth that the architect was an artist but the artistic temperament was far from explaining him. There was something else about him that was not definable, but which some even felt to be dangerous. Despite his dreaminess, he would sometimes surprise his friends with arts and even sports apart from his ordinary life, like memories of some previous existence. On this occasion, nevertheless, he hastened to disclaim any authority on the other man's hobby. I mustn't appear on false pretenses, he said with a smile. I hardly even know what an archaeologist is, except that a rather rusty remnant of Greek suggested that he is a man who studies old things." Yes, replied Haddo grimly, an archaeologist is a man who studies old things and finds they are new. Crane looked at him steadily for a moment, and then smiled again. Dare one suggest, he said, that some of the things we have been talking about are among the old things that turn out not to be old? His companion also was silent for a moment, and the smile on his rugged face was fainter, as he replied quietly, The wall round the park is really old. The one gate in it is Gothic, and I cannot find any trace of destruction or restoration. But the house and the estate generally, well, the romantic ideas read into these things are often rather recent romances, things almost like fashionable novels. For instance, the very name of this place, Priors Park, makes everybody think of it as a moonlit medieval abbey. I dare say the spiritualists by this time have discovered the ghost of a monk there, but according to the only authoritative study of the matter I can find, the place was simply called Priors, as any rural place is called Podgers, it was the house of a Mr. Pryor, a farmhouse, probably, that stood here at some time or other, and was a local landmark. Oh, there are a great many examples of the same thing here and everywhere else. This suburb of ours used to be a village, and because some of the people slurred the name and pronounced it Hollywell, many a minor poet indulged in fancies about a holy well, with spells and fairies and all the rest of it filling the suburban drawing-rooms with Celtic twilight. Whereas anyone acquainted with the facts knows that hole in wall simply means the hole-in-the-wall, and probably referred to some quite trivial accident. That's what I mean when I say that we don't so much find old things as we find new ones. Crane seemed to have grown somewhat inattentive to the little lecture on antiquities and novelties, and the cause of his restlessness was soon apparent, and indeed approaching. Lord Bulmer's sister, Juliet Bray, was coming slowly across the lawn, accompanied by one gentleman and followed by two others. The young architect was in the illogical condition of mind in which he preferred three to one. The man walking with the lady was no other than the eminent Prince Borodino, who was at least as famous as a distinguished diplomatist ought to be in the interests of what is called secret diplomacy he had been paying a round of visits at various english country houses and exactly what he was doing for diplomacy at Prior's Park was as much a secret as any diplomatist could desire the obvious thing to say of his appearance was that he would have been extremely handsome if he had not been entirely bald but indeed that would itself be a rather bald way of putting it Fantastic as it sounds, it would fit the case better to say that people would have been surprised to see hair growing on him, as surprised as if they had found hair growing on the bust of a Roman emperor. His tall figure was buttoned up in a tight-waisted fashion that rather accentuated his potential bulk, and he wore a red flower in his buttonhole. Of the two men walking behind, one was also bald, but in a more partial and also a more premature fashion, for his drooping moustache was still yellow, and if his eyes were somewhat heavy it was with languor and not with age. It was Horn Fisher, and he was talking as easily and idly about everything as he always did. His companion was a more striking and even more sinister figure, and he had the added importance of being Lord Bulmer's oldest and most intimate friend. He was generally known with a severe simplicity as Mr. Brain. But it was understood that he had been a judge and police official in India, and that he had enemies who had represented his measures against crime as themselves almost criminal. He was a brown skeleton of a man, with dark, deep, sunken eyes, and a black moustache that hid the meaning of his mouth. Though he had the look of one wasted by some tropical disease, his movements were much more alert than those of his lounging companion. It's all settled, announced the lady, with great animation when they came within hailing distance. You've all got to put on masquerade things, and very likely skates as well. Though the prince says that they don't go with it, but we don't care about that. It's freezing already and we don't often get such a chance in England. Even in India we don't exactly skate all the year round, observed Mr Brain. And even Italy is not primarily associated with ice, said the Italian. Italy is primarily associated with ices, remarked Mr Hornfisher. I mean with ice-cream men. Most people in this country imagine that Italy is entirely populated with ice-cream men and organ-grinders. There certainly are a lot of them. Perhaps they're an invading army in disguise. How do you know they're not the secret emissaries of our diplomacy?" asked the Prince, with a slightly scornful smile. An army of organ-grinders might pick up hints, and their monkeys might pick up all sorts of things. The organs are an organised fact, said the flippant Mr. Fisher. Well, I've known it pretty cold before now in Italy, and even in India, up on the Himalayan slopes. The ice on our own little round pond will be quite cosy by comparison. Juliet Bray was an attractive lady with dark hair and eyebrows and dancing eyes, and there was a geniality and even generosity in her rather imperious ways. In most matters she could command her brother, though that nobleman, like many other men of vague ideas, was not without a touch of the bully when he was at bay. She could certainly command her guests, even to the extent of decking out the most respectable and reluctant of them with her mediaeval masquerade and it really seemed as if she could command the elements also, like a witch, for the weather steadily hardened and sharpened. That night the ice of the lake, glimmering in the moonlight, was like a marble floor, and they had begun to dance and skate on it before it was dark. Pryors Park, or more properly the surrounding district of Hollinwall, was a country seat that had become a suburb. Having once had only a dependent village at its doors, it now found outside all its doors the signals of the expansion of London. Mr Haddo, who was engaged in historical researches both in the library and the locality, could find little assistance in the latter. He had already realised from the documents that Pryor's Park had originally been something like Pryor's Farm, named after some local figure but the new social conditions were all against his tracing the story by its traditions. Had any of the real rustics remained, he would probably have found some lingering legend of Mr. Pryor, however remote he might be. But the new nomadic population of clerks and artisans constantly shifting their homes from one suburb to another, or their children from one school to another, could have no corporate continuity. They had all the forgetfulness of history that goes everywhere with the extension of education. Nevertheless, when he came out of the library next morning and saw the wintry trees standing round the frozen pond like a black forest, he felt he might well have been far in the depths of the country. The old wall running round the park kept that enclosure itself still entirely rural and romantic, and one could easily imagine that the depths of that dark forest faded away indefinitely into distant vales and hills. The grey and black and silver of the wintry wood were all the more severe or sombre as a contrast to the coloured carnival groups that already stood on and around the frozen pool, for the house-party had already flung themselves impatiently into fancy dress, and the lawyer, with his neat black suit and red hair, was the only modern figure among them. Aren't you going to dress up? asked Juliet, indignantly, shaking at him a horned and tiring blue headdress of the fourteenth century, which framed her face very becomingly, fantastic as it was. Everybody here has to be in the Middle Ages. Even Mr. Brain has put on a sort of brown dressing-gown and says he's a monk. And Mr. Fisher got hold of some old potato-sacks in the kitchen and sewed them together. He's supposed to be a monk, too. As to the prince, he's perfectly glorious, in great crimson robes as a cardinal. He looks as if he could poison everybody. You simply must be something. I will be something later in the day, he replied. At present I am nothing but an antiquary and an attorney. I have to see your brother presently about some legal business, and also some local investigations he asked me to make. I must look a little like a steward when I give an account of my stewardship. "'Oh, but my brother has dressed up,' cried the girl, "'very much so. No end, if I may say so. Why, he's bearing down on you now, in all his glory.' The noble lord was indeed marching toward them, in a magnificent sixteenth-century costume of purple and gold, with a gold-hilted sword and a bloomed cap, and manners to match. Indeed, there was something more than his usual expansiveness of bodily action in his appearance at that moment. It almost seemed, so to speak, that the plumes of his hat had gone to his head. He flapped his great gold-lined cloak like the wings of a fairy king in a pantomime. He even drew his sword with a flourish and waved it about as he did his walking-stick. In the light of after events there seemed to be something monstrous and ominous about that exuberance, something of the spirit that is called Fay. At the time, it merely crossed a few people's minds that he might possibly be drunk. As he strode towards his sister, the first figure he passed was that of Leonard Crane, clad in Lincoln green, with the horn and baldric and sword appropriate to Robin Hood. For he was standing nearest to the lady, where, indeed, he might have been found during a disproportionate part of the time. He had displayed one of his buried talents in the matter of skating and now that the skating was over, seemed disposed to prolong the partnership. The boisterous Bulmer playfully made a pass at him with his drawn sword, going forward with the lunge in the proper fencing fashion, and making a somewhat too familiar Shakespearean quotation about a rodent and a Venetian coin. Probably in Crane also there was a subdued excitement just then. Anyhow, in one flash he had drawn his sword and parried, and then, suddenly, to the surprise of everyone, Bulmer's weapon seemed to spring out of his hand into the air, and rolled away on the ringing ice. "'Well, I never,' said the lady, as if with justifiable indignation. You never told me you could fence, too. Bulmer put up his sword with an air rather bewildered than annoyed, which increased the impression of something irresponsible in his mood at the moment. Then he turned rather abruptly to his lawyer, saying, "'We can settle up about the estate after dinner.' I've missed nearly all the skating as it is, and I doubt if the ice will hold till tomorrow night. I think I shall get up early and have a spin by myself. You won't be disturbed with my company, said Hornfisher in his weary fashion. If I have to begin the day with ice in the American fashion, I prefer it in smaller quantities. But no early hours for me in December. The early bird catches the cold. Oh, I shan't die of catching cold, answered Bulmer. And laughed, a considerable group of the skating party had consisted of the guests staying at the house, and the rest had tailed off in twos and threes some time before most of the guests began to retire for the night. Neighbors always invited to Pryor's Park on such occasions went back to their own houses in motors or on foot. The legal and archaeological gentlemen had returned to the inns of court by a late train to get a paper called for during his consultation with his client. And most of the other guests were drifting and lingering at various stages on their way up to bed. Horne Fisher, as if to deprive himself of any excuse for his refusal of early rising, had been the first to retire to his room. But, sleepy as he looked, he couldn't sleep. He had picked up from a table the book of antiquarian topography, in which Haddo had found his first hints about the origin of the local name. And, being a man with a quiet and quaint capacity for being interested in anything, he began to read it steadily, making notes now and then of details on which his previous reading left him with a certain doubt about his present conclusions. His room was the one nearest to the lake, in the centre of the woods, and was therefore the quietest, and none of the last echoes of the evening's festivity could reach him. He had followed carefully the argument which established the derivation from Mr. Pryor's farm and the hole in the wall, and disposed of any fashionable fancy about monks and magic wells, when he began to be conscious of a noise audible in the frozen silence of the night. It was not a particularly loud noise, but it seemed to consist of a series of thuds or heavy blows, such as might be struck on a wooden door by a man seeking to enter. They were followed by something like a faint creak or crack, as if the obstacle had either been opened or had given way. He opened his own bedroom door and listened, but as he heard talk and laughter all over the lower floors, he had no reason to fear that a summons would be neglected or the house left without protection. He went to his open window, looking out over the frozen pond and the moonlit statue in the middle of their circle of darkling woods, and listened again. But silence had returned to that silent place, and after straining his ears for a considerable time he could hear nothing but the solitary hoot of a distant departing train. Then he reminded himself how many nameless noises can be heard by the wakeful during the most ordinary night, and shrugging his shoulders went wearily to bed. He awoke suddenly and sat up in bed with his ears filled as with thunder, with the throbbing echoes of a rending cry. He remained rigid for a moment, and then sprang out of bed, throwing on the loose gown of sacking he had worn all day. He went first to the window which was open, but covered with a thick curtain, so that his room was still completely dark. But when he tossed the curtain aside and put his head out, he saw that a grey and silver daybreak had already appeared behind the black woods that surrounded the little lake. And that was all that he did see. Though the sound had certainly come in through the open window from this direction, the whole scene was still and empty under the morning light as under the moonlight. Then the long, rather lackadaisical hand he had laid on a window-sill gripped it tighter, as if to master a tremor, and his peering blue eyes grew bleak with fear. It may seem that his emotion was exaggerated and needless considering the effort of common sense by which he had conquered his nervousness about the noise on the previous night. But that had been a very different sort of noise. It might have been made by half a hundred things, from the chopping of wood to the breaking of bottles. There was only one thing in nature from which could come the sound that echoed through the dark house at daybreak. It was the awful, articulate voice of man, and it was something worse, for he knew what man. He knew also that it had been a shout for help. It seemed to him that he had heard the very word. But the word, short as it was, had been swallowed up, as if the man had been stifled or snatched away, even as he spoke. Only the mocking reverberations of it remained even in his memory. But he had no doubt of the original voice. He had no doubt that the great bull's voice of Francis Bray, Baron Bulmer, had been heard for the last time, between the darkness and the lifting dawn. How long he stood there he never knew, but he was startled into life by the first living thing that he saw stirring in that half-frozen landscape. Along the path beside the lake, and immediately under his window, a figure was walking slowly and softly but with great composure. A stately figure in robes of a splendid scarlet, It was the Italian prince still in his cardinal's costume. Most of the company had indeed lived in their costumes for the last day or two, and Fisher himself had assumed his frock of sacking as a convenient dressing-gown. But there seemed, nevertheless, something unusually finished and formal in the way of an early bird about this magnificent red cockatoo. It was as if the early bird had been up all night. "'What's the matter?' he called sharply, leaning out of the window, and the Italian turned up his great yellow face like a mask of brass. "'We had better discuss it downstairs,' said Prince Borodino. Fisher ran downstairs and encountered the great red-robed figure entering the doorway and blocking the entrance with his bulk. "'Did you hear that cry?' demanded Fisher. "'I heard a noise and I came out,' answered the diplomatist and his face was too dark in the shadow for its expression to be read. It was Bulmer's voice, insisted Fisher, I'll swear it was Bulmer's voice. Did you know him well? asked the other. The question seemed irrelevant, though it was not illogical, and Fisher could only answer in a random fashion that he knew Lord Bulmer only slightly. Nobody seems to have known him well, continued the Italian, in level tones. Nobody except that man Brain. Brain is rather older than Bulmer, but I fancy they shared a good many secrets." Fisher moved abruptly, as if waking from a momentary trance, and said in a new and more vigorous voice, "'But look here. Hadn't we better get outside and see if anything has happened?' "'The ice seems to be thawing,' said the other, almost with indifference. When they emerged from the house, dark stains and stars in the grey field of ice did indeed indicate that the frost was breaking up, as their host had prophesied the day before, and the very memory of yesterday brought back the mystery of today. He knew there would be a thaw, observed the Prince. He went out skating quite early on purpose. Did he call out because he landed in the water, do you think? Fisher looked puzzled. Bulmer was the last man to bellow like that, because he got his boots wet. And that's all he could do here. The water would hardly come up to the calf of a man of his size. You can see the flat weeds on the floor of the lake, as if it were through a thin pane of glass. No, if Bulmer had only broken the ice, he wouldn't have said much at the moment, though possibly a good deal afterwards. We should have found him stamping and damming up and down this path, and calling for clean boots let us hope we shall find him as happily employed remarked the diplomatist in that case the voice must have come out of the wood i'll swear it didn't come out of the house said fisher and the two disappeared together into the twilight of wintry trees the plantation stood dark against the fiery colours of sunrise a black fringe having that feathery appearance which makes trees when they are bare the very reverse of rugged hours and hours afterwards when the same dense but delicate margin was dark against the greenish colours opposite the sunset, the search thus begun at sunrise had not come to an end. By successive stages, and to slowly gathering groups of the company, it became apparent that the most extraordinary of all gaps had appeared in the party. The guests could find no trace of their host anywhere. The servants reported that his bed had been slept in, and his skates and his fancy costume were gone, as if he had risen early for the purpose he had himself avowed. But from the top of the house to the bottom, from the walls round the park to the pond in the centre, there was no trace of Lord Bulmer dead or alive. Hornfisher realised that a chilling premonition had already prevented him from expecting to find the man alive. But his bald brow was wrinkled over an entirely new and unnatural problem in not finding the man at all. He considered the possibility of Bulmer having gone off of his own accord, for some reason, but after fully weighing it, he finally dismissed it. It was inconsistent with the unmistakable voice heard at daybreak, and with many other practical obstacles. There was only one gateway in the ancient and lofty wall round the small park. The lodge-keeper kept it locked till late in the morning, and the lodge-keeper had seen no one pass. Fisher was fairly sure that he had before him a mathematical problem in an enclosed space. His instinct had been from the first so attuned to the tragedy that it would have been almost a relief to him to find the corpse. He would have been grieved, but not horrified, to come on the nobleman's body dangling from one of his own trees as from a gibbet, or floating in his own pool like a pallid weed. What horrified him was to find nothing. He soon became conscious that he was not alone even in his most individual and isolated experiments. He often found a figure following him like his shadow, in silent and almost secret clearings in the plantation, or outlying nooks and corners of the old wall. The dark, moustached mouth was as mute as the deep eyes were mobile, darting incessantly hither and thither, but it was clear that brain of the Indian police had taken up the trail like an old hunter after a tiger. Seeing that he was the only personal friend of the vanished man, this seemed natural enough, and Fisher resolved to deal frankly with him. This silence is rather a social strain, he said. May I break the ice by talking about the weather? Which, by the way, has already broken the ice. I know that breaking the ice might be a rather melancholy metaphor in this case. I don't think so, replied Brain shortly. I don't fancy the ice had much to do with it. I don't see how it could. "'What would you propose doing?' asked Fisher. "'Well, we've sent for the authorities, of course. "'But I hope to find something out before they come,' replied the Anglo-Indian. "'I can't say I have much hope from police methods in this country. "'Too much red tape, habeas corpus and that sort of thing. "'What we want is to see that nobody bolts. "'The nearest we could get to it would be to collect the company "'and count them, so to speak. "'Nobody's left lately except that lawyer who was poking about for antiquities. Oh, he's out of it. He left last night," answered the other. Eight hours after Bulmer's chauffeur saw his lawyer off by the train, I heard Bulmer's own voice, as plain as I hear yours now. I suppose you don't believe in spirits, said the man from India. After a pause he added, There's somebody else I should like to find, before we go after a fellow with an alibi in the inner temple. What's become of that fellow in green, the architect, dressed up as a forester, I haven't seen him about? Mr Brain managed to secure his assembly of all the distracted company before the arrival of the police. But when he first began to comment once more on the young architect's delay in putting in an appearance, he found himself in the presence of a minor mystery, and a psychological development of an entirely unexpected kind. Juliet Bray had confronted the catastrophe of her brother's disappearance with a sombre stoicism, in which there was, perhaps, more paralysis than pain. But when the other question came to the surface she was both agitated and angry. We don't want to jump to any conclusions about anybody, Brain was saying in his staccato style, but we should like to know a little more about Mr Crane. Nobody seems to know much about him or where he comes from and it seems a sort of coincidence that yesterday he actually crossed swords with Paul Bulmer, and could have struck him too, since he showed himself the better swordsman. Of course, that may be an accident, and couldn't possibly be called a case against anybody. But then we haven't the means to make a real case against anybody. Till the police come, we are only a pack of very amateur sleuth-hounds. And I think you're a pack of snobs, said Juliet. Because Mr Crane is a genius who's made his own way, you try to suggest he's a murderer without daring to say so. Because he wore a toy sword and happened to know how to use it, you want us to believe he used it like a bloodthirsty maniac for no reason in the world. And because he could have hit my brother and didn't, you deduce that he did. That's the sort of way you argue. And as for his having disappeared, you're wrong in that as you are in everything else, for here he comes and indeed the green figure of the fictitious Robin Hood, slowly detached itself from the grey background of the trees, and came toward them as she spoke. He approached the group slowly, but with composure. But he was decidedly pale, and the eyes of Brain and Fisher had already taken in one detail of the green-clad figure more clearly than all the rest. The horn still swung from his baldric, but the sword was gone. Rather to the surprise of the company, Brain did not follow up the question thus suggested, but while retaining an air of leading the inquiry, had also an appearance of changing the subject. Now we're all assembled, he observed quietly, there is a question I want to ask to begin with. Did anybody here actually see Lord Bulmer this morning? Leonard Crane turned his pale face round the circle of faces till he came to Juliet's. Then he compressed his lips a little, and said, Yes, I saw him. Was he alive and well? asked Brain quickly. How was he dressed? He appeared exceedingly well, replied Crane, with a curious intonation. He was dressed as he was yesterday, in that purple costume copied from the portrait of his ancestor in the sixteenth century. He had his skates in his hand. And his sword at his side, I suppose? asked the questioner. Where is your own sword, Mr. Crane? I threw it away. In the singular silence that ensued the train of thoughts in many minds became involuntarily a series of coloured pictures. They had grown used to their fanciful garments looking more gay and gorgeous against the dark grey and streaky silver of the forest, so that the moving figures glowed like stained-glass saints walking. The effect had been more fitting because so many of them had idly parodied pontifical or monastic dress. But the most arresting attitude that remained in their memories had been anything but merely monastic. That of the moment when the figure in bright green and the other in vivid violet had, for a moment, made a silver cross of their crossing swords. Even when it was a jest it had been something of a drama. And it was a strange and sinister thought that, in the grey daybreak, the same figures in the same posture might have been repeated as a tragedy. Did you quarrel with him asked Brain suddenly Yes replied the immovable man in green or he quarrelled with me Why did he quarrel with you asked the investigator and Leonard Crane made no reply Old Fisher curiously enough had only given half his attention to this crucial cross-examination his heavy lidded eyes had languidly followed the figure of Prince Borodino, who at this stage had strolled away towards the fringe of the wood and, after a pause as of meditation, had disappeared into the darkness of the trees. He was recalled from his irrelevance by the voice of Juliet Bray, which rang out with an altogether new note of decision. If that is the difficulty, it had best be cleared up. I am engaged to Mr. Crane, and when we told my brother, he did not approve of it, that's all. Neither Brain nor Fisher exhibited any surprise but the former added quietly, except, I suppose, that he and your brother went off into the wood to discuss it, where Mr. Crane mislaid his sword, not to mention his companion. And may I ask, inquired Crane, with a certain flicker of mockery passing over his pallid features, what I am supposed to have done with either of them? Let us adopt the cheerful thesis that I am a murderer. It has yet to be shown that I am a magician. If I ran your unfortunate friend through the body, what did I do with the body? Did I have it carried away by seven flying dragons, or was it merely a trifling matter of turning it into a milk-white hind?" "'It is no occasion for sneering,' said the Anglo-Indian judge, with abrupt authority. "'It doesn't make it look better for you that you can joke about the loss.' Fisher's dreamy and even dreary eye was still on the edge of the wood behind and he became conscious of masses of dark red, like a stormy sunset cloud glowing through the dark grey network of the thin trees, and the prince in his cardinal's robes re-emerged on the pathway. Brain had had half a notion that the prince might have gone to look for the lost rapier, but when he reappeared he was carrying in his hand not a sword, but an axe. The incongruity between the masquerade and the mystery had created a curious psychological atmosphere. At first they had all felt horribly ashamed at being caught in the foolish disguises of a festival by an event that had only too much the character of a funeral. Many of them would have already gone back and dressed in clothes that were more funereal, or at least more formal. But somehow, at the moment, this seemed like a second masquerade, more artificial and frivolous than the first. And as they reconciled themselves to their ridiculous trappings, a curious sensation had come over some of them, notably over the more sensitive like Crane and Fisher and Juliet, but in some degree over everybody except the practical Mr Brain. It was almost as if they were the ghosts of their own ancestors haunting that dark wood and dismal lake, and playing some old part that they only half remembered. The movements of those coloured figures seemed to mean something that had been settled long before, like a silent heraldry. Acts, attitudes, external objects were accepted as an allegory, even without the key. And they knew when a crisis had come, when they did not know what it was. And somehow they knew, subconsciously, that the whole tale had taken a new and terrible turn, when they saw the Prince stand in the gap of the gaunt trees, in his robes of angry crimson and with his lowering face of bronze, bearing in his hand a new shape of death. They could not have named a reason, but the two swords seemed indeed to have become toy swords, and the whole tale of them broken and tossed away like a toy. Borodino looked like the old-world headsman, clad in terrible red, and carrying the axe for the execution of the criminal. And the criminal was not Crane. Mr. Brain of the Indian Police, was glaring at the new object. And it was a moment or two before he spoke, harshly and almost hoarsely. What are you doing with that? he asked. Seems to be a woodman's chopper. A natural association of ideas, observed Horn If you meet a cat in the wood, you think it's a wild cat, though it may have just strolled from the drawing-room sofa. As a matter of fact— I happen to know that is not a woodman's chopper. It's the kitchen-chopper or meat-axe or something like that that somebody has thrown away in the wood. I saw it in the kitchen myself when I was getting the potato-sacks with which I reconstructed a medieval hermit. All the same, it's not without interest, remarked the prince, holding out the instrument to Fisher, who took it and examined it carefully. A butcher's cleaver that has done butcher's work— It was certainly the instrument of the crime, assented Fisher, in a low voice. Brain was staring at the dull blue gleam of the axe-head, with fierce and fascinated eyes. I don't understand you, he said, there is no—there are no marks on it. It has shed no blood, answered Fisher, but for all that it has committed a crime. This is as near as the criminal came to the crime when he committed it. What do you mean? He was not there when he did it, explained Fisher. It's a poor sort of murderer who can't murder people when he isn't there. You seem to be talking merely for the sake of mystification, said Brain. If you have any practical advice to give, you might as well make it intelligible. The only practical advice I can suggest, said Fisher thoughtfully, is a little research into local topography and nomenclature. They say there used to be a Mr. Prior who had a farm in this neighbourhood. I think some details about the domestic life of the late Mr. Pryor would throw a light on this terrible business." "'And you have nothing more immediate than your topography to offer,' said Brain, with a sneer, to help me avenge my friend." "'Well,' said Fisher, I should find out the truth about the hole in the wall." That night, at the close of a stormy twilight, and under a strong west wind that followed the breaking of the frost, Lend Crane was wending his way in a wild, rotary walk round and round the high, continuous wall that enclosed the little wood. He was driven by a desperate idea of solving for himself the riddle that had clouded his reputation, and already even threatened his liberty. The police authorities, now in charge of the inquiry, had not arrested him, but he knew well enough that if he tried to move far afield he would be instantly arrested. Hornfisher's fragmentary hints, though he had refused to expand them as yet, had stirred the artistic temperament of the architect to a sort of wild analysis, and he was resolved to read the hieroglyph upside down and every way until it made sense. If it was something connected with a hole in the wall, he would find the hole in the wall, but as a matter of fact he was unable to find the faintest crack in the wall his professional knowledge told him that the masonry was all of one workmanship and one date and except for the regular entrance which threw no light on the mystery he found nothing suggesting any sort of hiding place or means of escape walking a narrow path between the winding wall and the wild eastward bend and sweep of the grey and feathery trees seeing shifting gleams of a lost sunset winking almost like lightning as the clouds of tempest scudded across the sky and mingling with the first faint blue light from a slowly strengthened moon behind him, he began to feel his head going round as his heels were going round and round the blind, recurrent barrier. He had thoughts on the border of thought, fancies about a fourth dimension which was itself a hole to hide anything, of seeing everything from a new angle out of a new window in the senses, or of some mystical light and transparency, like the new rays of chemistry in which he could see Bulmer's body, horrible and glaring, floating in a lurid halo over the woods in the wall. He was haunted also with the hint, which somehow seemed to be equally horrifying, that it all had something to do with Mr. Pryor. There seemed even to be something creepy in the fact that he was always respectfully referred to as Mr. Pryor, and that it was in the domestic life of the dead farmer that he had been bidden to seek the seed of these dreadful things. As a matter of fact, he had found that no local inquiries had revealed anything at all about the prior family. The moonlight had broadened and brightened, the wind had driven off the clouds and itself died fitfully away, when he came round again to the artificial lake in front of the house. For some reason it looked a very artificial lake. Indeed, the whole scene was like a classical landscape with a touch of Watto, the Palladian façade of the house pale in the moon and the same silver touching the very pagan and naked marble nymph in the middle of the pond. Rather to his surprise, he found another figure there beside the statue, sitting almost equally motionless, and the same silver pencil traced the wrinkled brow and patient face of Horn Fisher, still dressed as a hermit and apparently practising something of the solitude of a hermit. Nevertheless, he looked up at Leonard Crane and smiled almost as if he had expected him. "'Look here,' said Crane, planting himself in front of him, "'can you tell me anything about this business?' "'I shall soon have to tell everybody everything about it,' replied Fisher. "'But I've no objection to telling you something first. But, to begin with, will you tell me something?' What really happened when you met Bulmer this morning? You did throw away your sword, but you didn't kill him. I didn't kill him because I threw away my sword, said the other. I did it on purpose. Or I'm not sure what might have happened. After a pause he went on quietly. The late Lord Bulmer was a very breezy gentleman, extremely breezy. He was very genial with his inferiors, and would have his lawyer and his architect staying in his house for all sorts of holidays and amusements. But there was another side to him, which they found out when they tried to be his equals. When I told him that his sister and I were engaged, something happened which I simply can't and won't describe. It seemed to me like some monstrous upheaval of madness. But I suppose the truth is painfully simple. There is such a thing as the coarseness of a gentleman. And it is the most horrible thing in humanity. I know, said Fisher, the Renaissance nobles of the Tudor time were like that it is odd that you should say that crane went on for while we were talking there came on me a curious feeling that we were repeating some scene of the past and that i was really some outlaw found in the woods like robin hood and that he had really stepped in all his plumes and purple out of the picture-frame of the ancestral portrait anyhow he was the man in possession and he neither feared god nor regarded man i defied him of course and walked away I might really have killed him if I had not walked away.' "'Yes,' said Fisher, nodding, "'his ancestor was in possession, and he was in possession. And this is the end of the story. It all fits in.' "'Fits in with what?' cried his companion, with sudden impatience. "'I can't make head or tail of it. You tell me to look for the secret in the hole in the wall. But I can't find any hole in the wall.' "'There isn't any,' said Fisher. "'That's the secret.' After reflecting a moment, he added, unless you call it a hole in the wall of the world, look, here, I'll tell you if you like, but I'm afraid it involves an introduction. You've got to understand one of the tricks of the modern mind, a tendency that most people obey without noticing it. In the village or suburb outside, there's an inn with the sign of St George and the Dragon. Now, suppose I went about telling everybody that this was only a corruption of King George and the Dragoon. Scores of people would believe it without any inquiry, from a vague feeling that it's probable because it's prosaic. It turns something romantic and legendary into something recent and ordinary. And that somehow makes it sound rational, though it's unsupported by reason. Of course, some people would have the sense to remember having seen St George in old Italian pictures and French romances, but a good many wouldn't think about it at all. They would just swallow the scepticism because it was scepticism. Modern intelligence won't accept anything on authority, but it will accept anything without authority. That's exactly what has happened here. When some critic or other chose to say that Pryor's Park was not a priory but was named after some quite modern man named Pryor, nobody really tested the theory at all. It never occurred to anybody repeating the story to ask if there was any Mr. Pryor, if anybody had ever seen him or heard of him. As a matter of fact, it was a priory and shared the fate of most priories. That is, the Tudor gentleman with the plume simply stole it by brute force and turned it into his own private house. He did worse things as usual here. But the point here is that this is how the trick works, and the trick works in the same way in the other parts of the tale. The name of this district is printed Holinwall in all the best maps produced by the scholars. And they allude lightly, not without a smile, to the fact that it was pronounced Hollywell by the most ignorant and old-fashioned of the poor. But it is spelled wrong and pronounced right. Do you mean to say, asked Crane quickly, that there really was a well? There is a well, said Fisher, and the truth lies at the bottom of it. As he spoke, he stretched out his hand and pointed toward the sheet of water in front of him. The well is under the water somewhere, he said, and this is not the first tragedy connected with it. The founder of this house did something which his fellow ruffians very seldom did, something that had to be hushed up even in the anarchy of the pillage of the monasteries. The well was connected with the miracles of some saint, and the last prior that guarded it was something like a saint himself, certainly he was something very like a martyr. He defied the new owner and dared him to pollute the place till the noble, in a fury, stabbed him, and flung his body into the well, whither, after four hundred years, it has been followed by an heir of the usurper, clad in the same purple, and walking the world with the same pride. But how did it happen, demanded Crane, that for the first time Bulmer fell in at that particular spot? Because the ice was only loosened at that particular spot by the only man who knew it, answered Hornfisher. It was cracked deliberately with the kitchen chopper at that special place, and I myself heard the hammering and did not understand it. The place had been covered with an artificial lake, if only because the whole truth had to be covered with an artificial legend. But don't you see that it is exactly what those pagan nobles would have done, to desecrate it with a sort of heathen goddess, as the Roman Emperor built a temple to Venus on the Holy Sepulchre? But the truth could still be traced out by any scholarly man determined to trace it. And this man was determined to trace it. What man? asked the other, with a shadow of the answer in his mind. The only man who has an alibi, replied Fisher. James Haddo, the antiquarian lawyer, left the night before the fatality, but he left that black star of death on the ice. He left abruptly, having previously proposed to stay, probably, I think, after an ugly scene with Bulmer at their legal interview. As you know yourself, Bulmer could make a man feel pretty murderous, and I rather fancy the lawyer had himself irregularities to confess, and was in danger of exposure by his client. But it's my reading of human nature that a man will cheat in his trade, but not in his hobby. Addo may have been a dishonest lawyer, but he couldn't help being an honest antiquary. When he got on the track of the truth about the Holy Well, he had to follow it up. He was not to be bamboozled with newspaper anecdotes about Mr. Pryor and a hole in the wall. He found out everything, even to the exact location of the well. And he was rewarded. If being a successful assassin can be regarded as a reward, "'And how did you get on the track of all this hidden history?' asked the young architect. A cloud came across the brow of Horn Fisher. "'I knew only too much about it already,' he said. "'And after all, it's shameful for me to be speaking lightly of poor Bulmer, who has paid his penalty. But the rest of us haven't. I dare say every cigar I smoke and every liqueur I drink comes directly or indirectly from the harrying of the holy places and the persecution of the poor.' After all, it needs very little poking about in the past to find that hole in the wall, that great breach in the defences of English history. It lies just under the surface of a thin sheet of sham information and instruction, just as the black and blood-stained well lies just under the floor of shallow water and flat weeds. Oh, the ice is thin, but it bears, it is strong enough to support us when we dress up as monks and dance on it, in mockery of the dear quaint old Middle Ages. They told me I must put on fancy dress, so I did put on fancy dress, according to my own taste and fancy. I put on the only costume I think fit for a man who has inherited the position of a gentleman, and yet has not entirely lost the feelings of one. In answer to a look of inquiry, he rose with a sweeping and downward gesture. Sackcloth, he said, and I would wear the ashes as well, if they would stay on my bald head. End of chapter.